hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Thank you again for joining us for another episode of Queer Money. This episode is one that we're very proud to bring to you. As in the past, we've said that we like to share with you ways that you can do more and be more with your money. And this week, we have a shining example of someone who has done just that. Steve Bollinger has changed the face of AIDS in Africa by doing more and being more. And it's very interesting to find out what prompted all this. We also ask that you stick around to the very end of the show so that you can see the amazing impact that he has had and is continuing to have on on the face of AIDS in Africa. So let's get on with another Queer Money Show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. Okay, let's see if this card goes through for that $8,000 drink. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody wants to be a part of the in crowd. Everybody wants to to look good. My my decision was, I'm not a victim. I'm not going to stay and work someplace where this is a problem. Normally, we don't drink on Queer Money, but because we're talking about a subject that David is rather vanilla on... Grab a glass of wine, because you're listening to Queer Money with the Debt Free Guys. This is the only show helping our community do more and be more by talking about money from the queer perspective. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. We have a great show uh, prepared for you this week. We're actually talking about... uh, um, working in our communities and ways that we can do that and success stories of doing that. And we have a guest this week who has done just that, transitioned into working in communities and uh, has uh, experienced a a fair degree of success in doing this. And we have some great stories prepared and some questions around that. So why don't we go ahead and get started by meeting our guest? Yep. So we have um, former Denverite Steve Bollinger with us. He is the founder of DIG. Uh, that stands for Development and Gardening. And um, he left Denver in, I think, 2005? Um, 2001. 2001, sorry. Okay. Um, uh, and pursued some other endeavors. And we're excited to have him on to share his story. So, Steve, do you mind giving us a brief uh, introduction of who you are and what you're all about? Okay. Um, basically, I started. I grew up in Kansas. And uh, fortunately, I moved to Denver after college. And Denver was my coming out place, and I was able to find a great group of friends there. And uh, Denver was very good to me, and uh, lived there for a while. And but then got to a point I wanted to move on. I'm not a person that stays in one place, it seems. So, um, but uh, headed out to San Diego, and then worked out there for a while before uh, starting Dig. And uh, well, before going to Peace Corps and then starting to dig after that. So, right. So, when you first got out of college and you moved to Denver, what industry were you in? Uh, I was in finance. I was uh, what they called a SOS trader, uh, a day trader. It was when day trading was just starting. Mm-hmm. And um, so, we were buying. I worked for a company that I traded this guy's money. He was, and he opened these. Uh, franchise locations where people could come in and go trade their money. And uh, so I traded a portion of his money and we just were in and out of stocks within 30 seconds a minute buying thousand thousand block shares. 
Okay, just making a quarter point, a teeny, or an eighth off of those trans speedy transactions. So that was a stressless job, wasn't it? <laughs> it was like going to Las Vegas every morning. So. <laughs> Which, after a while, I imagine gets a little tiring, huh? It was fun. Yeah. Was so fun. you went to college um, and got a finance degree. So was was your original plan to get into financial services? Yeah, I mean. The original plan was to, yeah, uh, you know, after seeing the movie Wall Street, you know, go and be like Gordon Gecko and make all this money. And but, um, but yeah, life changes and takes you on a different path, and you also realize that's not what it's about. And uh, so it was intent, you know, intentionally, I was wanting to be real heavily involved with finance and go to New York, uh, but just. Uh, life took me in different directions that were more wholesome, I guess, and uh, purposeful. Sure. Interesting. So you said you're, you originally planned on going to New York. What was the draw to Denver? Um, well, that's where they uh, – we opened an office in Wichita first, Kansas, and that's where he was from, the main the investor. And then he was opening up an office in Denver, and then he asked – some of us to go open the office in Denver and that's how I got to Denver. And, uh, once I got there, then I realized that's where I wanted to stay. So, Denver is a great city. We, it seems like it does attract a lot of individuals from the surrounding states, you know, Nebraska, Kansas, Wyoming. It seems to be the destination for quite a few people, especially I I, I think for, uh, for queer individuals, uh, in, in those days who were running off to cities where they felt much more comfortable or safe living in. Yeah, it was definitely an island of, it was my first gay experience, first gay bar, first, I mean, it was everything. (laughs) And it was, I couldn't believe all these people were like me. So I felt really, uh, and I had a great group of people that adopted me and took me in and, and treated me well. And just, uh, so it was a good, place for me very safe place you found your cheers huh? <laughs> yeah exactly was that jr's <laughs> uh jr's wasn't there yet it no. was the grand i don't know if oh you know the grand yes, yeah yes, definitely I remember those days times. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. interesting you know when i first moved out here i didn't know that there was a gay scene that wasn't really my draw um but when i got when i discovered the gay scene i was really taken aback by how big it was at that time i mean it was it had there were a lot a lot of guys in town, um, and there was a decent club bar scene to go to, mm-hmm. which, you know, coming from Philadelphia, I was quite surprised to find out about. So what, yeah. um, what, yeah, um, you know, you had, you, know, you obviously had a similar, similar surprise. What, um, what was that scene like for you at the time? What was it like connecting with your people? Um, you know, how was that coming from going, coming from where you did to coming to, you know, finding your people? Oh, it felt so great. Um, I, I was so excited for every weekend to meet people and to get back, you know, go to that social environment in a bar and actually see people that were like me. And um, it was scary at first trying to meet those first people, but uh, it just, uh, I dominoed into a good group of people. And uh, yeah, it was a blast. It was like complete, I was away from all my relatives anybody that knew me and I could be who I, my 
true self. I didn't have to hide anymore. Mm-hmm. And that felt so good. And right. uh, Did you, so did, this something that Dave and I um, have in, in hindsight uh, felt that we experienced coming from the, the backgrounds that we did that when we finally found our people, um, we re- really reveled in that. And we almost kind of, um, the way that we ended up acquiring all the debt that we did, that we ended up having to pay off, was that we were sort of over-validating ourselves um, to make up for sort of lost time when we were younger, having felt you know less than or awkward, um, and not necessarily having the same life experiences that our straight peers had at the same age. Um, did you find um, a similar disconnect that you'd loved the scene, you loved the people that you're meeting with, but... Um, you kind of had a, a struggle with uh, trying to validate yourself in some kind of way or, uh, you know, making more mistakes in certain areas that you shouldn't. Oh, I mean, I, I wasn't a person that was spending a lot of money cause I didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> I was always living, I was living basically surviving and, and, uh, um, yeah, so I wasn't driving nice cars or buying nice clothes or, you know, trying to keep up with the Joneses in that way or the gay scene in that way. Sure. Um, so it was, uh, I didn't get myself into trouble that way. Um, but um, no, it was, for me, it was such a new experience and that I didn't feel out of. I don't know how to answer that question really, but I didn't feel out of control in any, any certain area. Interesting. Um, it, it, so it, I think coming out and transitioning in life, uh, a lot of individuals take a varied number of paths. You know, some individuals can uh, acclimate to being queer or being out relatively easily, uh, and some individuals struggle with it. And some individuals have bumps along the way and then it smooths out. And so it's kind of interesting for us because what that's one of the things that John and I reflect on from time to time is it, it, were we trying to validate our, ourselves, um, seek uh, acceptance in the community by trying to give the back to the community what it was expecting from us you know we're, we why, why were we going out four nights a week why were we buying the kinds of clothes that we were trying to put on a perception or, or a, an image that wasn't necessarily who we were inside it sounds like you had a, a fairly cohesive group of individuals that you hung out with that maybe helped transition that process a little bit easier which sounds nice you know very appealing yeah, I think so. I mean, the great thing about Denver was for me, uh, now looking back on it, because I've lived in a lot of places now, Denver, everybody was your friend. Mm-hmm. And every, like San Diego, Fort Lauderdale, uh, and the other places I've lived in the world, it's more everybody was your acquaintance. And Denver was always, people were authentic, at least at my time there. Mm-hmm. And they were my friends, and those people are still involved in my life wherever they are in the world. And uh, it's just, and that shows in the fundraisers that we have. I mean, uh, you know, when I came back to Denver with this idea, uh, and I had left Denver for, I'd been gone from Denver six years maybe since 
you know, San Diego and then the Peace Corps. And I came back with the idea of trying to do this nonprofit. You know, a lot of people, a lot of my core friends and just, you know, they all came to those fundraisers to help start it, even though they haven't seen me in six years. Right. But they, they were my friends. And, uh, and that's not so easy to do in other cities to have that core support. It's interesting. So it it sounds like that may have played a formative role in you going from being a day trader to this, uh, being in active in the community and, and uh, fundraising. Can you tell us a little bit about that path for you? How did you go from being a day trader to, it sounds like you took uh, a step in between and went to the Peace Corps, and then you started working, doing your own work in the communities. Maybe you can give us a little bit about that story. Yeah, do a quick. Um, so I, after the day trading in Denver, uh, basically that investor had 15 traders. Um, I was the second to last to go. Um, they lost a lot of his money, and he decided to pull out of this business. So. I was the second last to go, and so he closed the um, closed the trading house, and uh, so then I was in Denver uh, without a job. So I I've always painted, uh, like interior exterior painting, did that all through college and with my own business, and then so I started doing that in Denver, and then I also worked, went to work for first. Trust Data Links, I think it was called. We were a custodial account for 401ks. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you know Mike Jones? No. He, I, I worked there with him. Okay. Um, but so I was doing that for a while, and then I went to JD Edwards, oh. not uh, the software company mm-hmm. that PeopleSoft and Oracle and them now. But uh, so I did that corporate route and just got to a point in Denver where relationship ended, you know, I was with Tilden. Uh, and, um, so we decided to go to California separate, go together, but separate. And, uh, I wanted to move West, wanted to learn how to surf. And so it was time to leave Denver. And so I left and we left. And so I went out there and, I started painting again out there, but also working at a gay bar, Bourbon Street. And I was just working three nights a week there. And I was making more money than I was in a corporate environment in Denver. So I was oh, wow. like, I can work three nights a week and play during the day and <laughs> and have a nice life. And that's what I did for a while. And then I got bored with that. But I saved up enough money to take this trip. I decided I was going to do an around the world trip and spend a year traveling. And so I went out on that trip and I spent, I ended up doing nine months and most of it was in Asia. And, um, and that's how, um, kind of my mental shift happened in what I wanted to do next in my life. And, um, your time in Asia. (laughs) Sorry. Your time in Asia yeah. was where you had that shift? Yeah, just traveling all over. And it's just seeing how 90% of the world actually lives, you know, below 
poverty, I mean, way poverty level. And um, so I had some things happen on that trip that just changed me and decided that I'm not going to go back and work for a stock price. Um, it's going to have to, whatever I had, did had to have a positive effect on humanity. And that's pretty much kind of how I've lived my life since that point. And um, I've been fortunate to do that. So, Could, could you explain a little bit what, what the catalyst was for that mental shift? Um, there was Cambodia was the point where it just that country completely changed me. Um, there's some people I met there and some of the things they did for me when I was there. Just it just, yeah, I, uh, to see people with giving them some just, um, I mean, it's a long, couple long stories, but seeing doing some stuff for some people, small things and how it changed their life. And just buying them a new coat, uh, this one guy that I've, he's part of my family now. And, uh, but I bought, he was my, uh, motorbike driver and, uh, we just got to be really good friends when I was there. And so I bought him a coat. It was the first new thing he has ever had in his entire life. Um, he would sleep in it. He would wear it every day. He, cause it was He's never had something new. And to see how happy he was, that pure joy, and how people looked at him when he wore that coat, he was a different person, and people watched him. And and that's when you see, we don't see that in America anymore, real emotions and real happiness out of simple things. And those are the things that just changed me. Mm -hmm. And him in particular. And um, so, and I just kind of, when I got back from that trip, I started looking for international development jobs. Um, and everybody wanted two years experience living abroad and language. I had some of the language, but uh, so then I investigated Peace Corps. And that was the easiest. I didn't want to go back to grad school and go in debt again. Um, so Peace Corps was the easy route to get my skill set up with language and international development work without having to pay for anything. And so that's what I did. And Sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. That's very interesting you say that, that you, you were emotionally changed as an individual. And when you came back to the U.S., you looked for the most convenient route to or expedient route to get you to where you felt like you could be doing what you truly want to do. And yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that you, you make a good point there. You said you didn't go to grad school because you would acquire the debt. Um, and we live in a culture, I think, here where um, we're kind of uh, – told that that you need to have it be done this way or you need to do it the best way and that oftentimes becomes such a roadblock to people actually getting to where they want to being able to do what they want that maybe they don't ever get back to doing what they want because there's yep. they've taken too much time away from that initial mo emotion or change or whatever it was that that brought about this idea to make a change 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I after doing that year trip was or nine months was that's all the education a person needs really. <laughs> it's <laughs> so that I, changes you so much and it just Can I it, ask you about you, that? Yeah. How did you prepare for that? Um, you, know, you, you said you saved enough money. How did you know how much to save? How did you start tracking your course? Like, how, if somebody was was inspired by what your story is, how would they try to replicate that in their own way? Um, you can go to America. Well, I don't know if American Airlines still does it, but they have an around the world ticket um, that you can buy, uh, and it's you get certain flight segments per continent. Um, it's customizable, mm-hmm. um, but it's around. Depends how you do it, but I paid like around five thousand dollars for it. Okay. And so you're going in the, you know, certain path around the world, and uh, you know you got all these flight segments, so you just kind of have to work in those parameters. And uh, I did research on how much countries would cost, uh, and people really encouraged me to go to India or uh, Asia, and and it was the most uh, inexpensive place. Uh, Africa is not cheap, and it's uh, a lot harder to travel and more expensive. And but Asia is pretty easy and very diverse. Um, so I spent most of my time there. And and then once you get on that trek, there's a lot of people doing around the world, um, not Americans, but mm. uh, South Africans. Europeans, everybody. So, uh, but so you then you, they kind of help. Also, you just share stories, and they kind of guide you, and to, and you and sometimes you leapfrog them in a totally different country. It's just kind of yeah. there's a lot of people in that same circle, and it's like a fraternity. Um, right. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say it's a, it's like a group of nomads that keep on passing each other. Yeah. yeah. When I, I was fortunate to do some trekking in Nepal, and that was one of the things that we ran into regularly. Uh, we would meet individuals who were fresh out of college or out of military service in their country, and that's what they were doing: was spending a year yep. or two traveling around the world. And that, similar to you, they were making that global, wanted to circle the world trip so that they could get experience in lots of different countries. Yeah. And I was I was still trading. I was trading my own stuff to pay for that trip. You know, I'd get to a place to be like, okay, I need some money, I need to sell some stock. So, um, but that's also partly how I funded it uh, through continually to trade stocks. Interesting. Gotcha. So, was the draw to Asia primar- primarily financial, or was there yeah. another reason to go there? Uh, my stepsister does a lot of traveling for recruiting for a private uh, college, and so she really encouraged me to go there. Uh, and some people that would come into the bar that I worked with in San Diego, because I would tell people, oh, this is what I'm going to go do. And then so they would tell me, oh, you need to go here, here, here. And a lot of people suggested Asia. and uh, But I started in Australia, then went to Philippines, then Southeast Asia. India, and then did a couple of stops in Europe and then back home and New Zealand. Um, so, uh, but most of it Asia. And, sure. and, yeah. And um, was this the trip when you were in Hong Kong and you started the recycling company? <laughs> no. Or was that a different time? I did stop in Hong Kong 
uh, on that round the world trip. And I wrote in my, on my journal, I can, it's a great place, but I could never live here. But <laughs> then I go back and live there. Um, <laughs> that's, so that was no, a separate, separate trip because my, my husband, Brian, he was working Hong Kong came about because he was working for Cathay Pacific. Uh, they're the main airline there. So, uh, he was working there for them. And so that's how I, uh, had been going back and forth to Hong Kong and then stayed gotcha. uh, for about three years. So you did this world trip. It changed you. You came back to the States and did you come back to San Diego or did you go return somewhere else? Yeah, I came back to San Diego. Um, and then, uh, was looking for the job in the international development and then mm. decided to do Peace Corps. Had my, did all my paperwork for Peace Corps, the whole process for that, had my interview and they basically said, yeah, you can, uh, if you want to go immediately, which I did, you could probably go to West Africa. So, and that's where they sent me. Gotcha. Cause I had, I had agricultural experience and I spoke French. So they, uh, that was always an immediate position, and so they sent me there to sure. Senegal. So to get in the Peace Corps, is it always a requirement to have another language? No, you don't have to. Uh, yeah, it's you have to have a college degree, and that's it. And, and what did you do then, in your time in the Peace Corps? Uh, I was an urban agricultural uh Specialist, I guess. Um, so I worked in the city of Dakar, and it's their capital city. It's about know, four million people or so, and uh, I worked with women's groups to help them create these urban gardens and uh, how to sustain them. And when my Peace Corps boss asked me if I would do a project for this hospital which is the university hospital for HIV and AIDS. And so he had already been talking with the head doctor there about this project. And so we got a grant from USAID, Peace Corps did, to do this project. So uh, we, we built a garden there next to the hospital to uh, provide the vegetables. When you're sick in Africa in these hospitals, they don't provide you provide food your family just usually provide has to bring their food and sometimes they're not eating at all but so we were trying to provide a source of food for people with hiv and because they're on your on the meds and it's very difficult if you're not nourished while you're being medicated and um so we were trying to provide that source of food for the kitchen to actually provide vegetables for the patients and that's so we started with that garden and it just blew up. I mean, it was such a great success. And that's when I thought, well, why? I did some research to see if anybody else was doing it. And nobody had that idea. And there was gardens out there, but nobody was, that was their focus. Mm-hmm. Of taking these gardens, building them in next to HIV clinics, outpatient centers, and, um, and replicating that. So uh, I asked Sarah one day uh, 
if she would be interested in helping with that. And she did. She said yes, but she didn't. I don't think she realized what I was asking. So, and who's Sarah again? And Sarah's the other founder. Okay. So, so she was in Peace Corps with me. Okay. And she lived in a village out the village. And so she would come in Dakar occasionally for Peace Corps office stuff. So we would have a regional house there where Peace Corps volunteers would hang out and stay. It's kind of like a little resort for Peace Corps people <laughs> to get away from their village and, you know, have a kitchen to cook in and stuff like that, watch TV. Uh, so she was there and, and so we were talking about it and she would come volunteer at the garden uh, whenever she was in town. So um, she knew the work I was doing. And, and so I asked her if she would help and, I think she said she was thinking, no, I'm just going to help write some papers or do this or that. But she didn't know she was going to be running it. So. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm just going to take a step back. Um, one of the things that you talked about is I think is one of the key um, items that I see recurring, a key theme I see recurring whenever I meet somebody who has done something that has gone on to, to be successful. And that's this idea of looking around and you see that there's a need. And then you figure out how to use your current skills, your current skill set to be able to fill that need. So you had been in the Peace Corps, you had some farming experience before going in and then while you're there, but then while you're there, you see this opportunity and then you say, there's a, there's a need here that you can fill with these urban gardens that would help individuals specifically. You niched into this idea of working specifically with individuals who were HIV positive. Is that right? Or were in the hospitals? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I felt, I mean, I'll tell you, this is, I felt if I left Peace Corps and I came back to the States and I just got a job, I would be doing humanity a disservice because mm. I had this gift. I had this idea and I had this gift in my head that it's, I could give this to people and, or I could go back to the States and not do anything. And I think that's a crime. Mm. Um, so I knew this was, I mean, I did those trips and traveling and all this, trying to find what I'm supposed to be doing in my life. And this, that was the point where I've never had this feeling before. This is what I'm supposed to do with my whole heart. I don't know how we're going to do it, but I felt this immense peace with myself that I've never felt before because this was like, this is what I'm here to do. I knew it wasn't going to be my whole life, but I knew this is what I needed to give. Mm -hmm. And, and I'd never felt that peace before in my life. How did that, can you describe that a little bit? How, how did that come on? Was it sort of something that came to you over the course of time or was it, was there like, like they always say an aha moment, like, Oh, this is what we're supposed to do. <laughs> like how did, how did that come about? Like, so that people can pay attention to so figure out you know, what they're looking for. Yeah, it's, I don't know what that, I don't, I can't put a pinpoint a day or, uh, or a conversation to where it clicked, but mm -hmm. it, uh, 
but it was just like, yeah, in a matter of a couple of days, some, I guess things came, came together or thought and uh, doing research to see if anybody's doing it. And then, then that thought just stuck in my head and, and then I just couldn't get it out. And I was like, okay, what are we going to do next? How are we going to do it? Um, and so much that I quit Peace Corps early um, to, to come back and do it. Um, and that could have been, uh, I probably could have, I definitely could have stayed. My boss at Peace Corps was really going to help me. He wanted me to stay so much and, uh, uh, he said, I, you know, I'll let you work on this project and just stay here and do it. And, but develop the project here while you're here. And, uh, looking back on it, I should have done that probably. Um, yeah, he offered for me to stay and uh, finish out my term there um, and and give me a lot of things. He was going to really cater to whatever I needed. and uh, But this thought in my head just kept going. And so um, it would have been better if I had probably stayed, but I came back and dove into – uh, writing the 501c3 and doing all the paperwork and I came back to San Diego and uh, decided we were going to have our first fundraiser there and uh, do San Diego, Denver and Los Angeles. Um, gotcha. Those where I had a network of friends. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it was, that's where we, I don't know where I was going with that thought, but um, so so you realized that this was what your passion was. You realized that you were motivated to do this, and although you, I don't want to say that you had a comfortable life, but you had um, kind of things already planned for you. You had a way, you know, a way of life. But you said, "This is a burning desire inside me. I'm willing to give up what I'm doing today." This secure life I'm willing to give that up to go back and do something that is motivating to me or passionate I'm passionate about and then you came back to the United States and you went through this process so what was your real goal when you left you left Senate is it Senegal again yeah so you left Senegal came back to the United States and your goal was to go back and do what um well we had set up we had Sarah and I met with uh, some other big nonprofits, big U.S. nonprofits in Senegal, and uh, to see if we could get them to sponsor a garden, or we could work with them in a capacity to complement their programs. Because we do a lot of, uh, we work with a lot of other nonprofits that are, like I said, there wasn't anybody just doing gardens, and that's their focus. You will have like. Family Health International that's doing nutrition. They're doing uh, HIV counseling and support and uh, yeah, all that type of stuff and with nutrition, and they may be doing child care stuff. They have all these things, but for us, we were kind of a complementary um, thing that they could tack on, mm -hmm. and that's what we did with these other nonprofits. And so um, we would just, we worked with them. So 
we had those meetings in Senegal before I came back. So we already had a project and we had, they were going to give us $5,000 to do the, to pay for the garden. That's what they're going to do. And so uh, I came back to do the paperwork for the 501c3 and then also raise some money to support myself over there and other any other projects that we did. Um, so uh, that was the goal was to get our nonprofit status and then get some money um, from from uh, from my network of friends. Uh, and that's where the gay community really stepped. The dig would not exist if it wasn't for the gay community. It's simple. Um, uh, we didn't tap into Sarah's network of friends till a year or so later, but the gay community is the ones in, in Denver and San Diego and LA that, uh, that basically founded dig. So it would not exist without that. Why do you think that is? Is it because they're, they're tied to you because of the queer communities tied to HIV AIDS or is it just the, the philanthropic motivation? Um, I think it's a combination thing. I, fortunately, I worked in the bar in San, San Diego when I, uh, when I, during my time there and it was one of the most popular bars. So a lot of people knew me and, um, and I had a lot of acquaintances there. Um, so, and they, I guess it's trust when people, um, they had to trust, trust me and believe in me to come to the event and then to give the money. I think HIV was also a much higher 10 years ago. It was more on people's radar. Um, it's not so much now. So there was a definite, uh, an authentic cause that was in their mind that they would go to. And, uh, and then here's somebody that they know that's going out and trying to do something about it. Um, so they felt more connected to the cause. I mean, we're being gay, we're connected to the cause with HIV, but they're also connected, I guess, with me because, um, I would be the one going over and doing it. And that's a lot of social responsibility in itself is like when you do start that nonprofit and I didn't realize, realize this until later is like, yeah, you start these things, but you're also committed to them. You can't just shut it down in a year. Um, this is your friend's money and you're responsible for that. And they're expecting things from you. I didn't, I didn't ever really think of it that way or, it wasn't my motivation, but it was, uh, it's something you just can't walk away from. Right. It's the reality yeah. of, of being in that space of being in that, uh, nonprofit space that you are taking other individuals money. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, and they trust you to do the right thing. So, so let's, let's, uh, fast forward a little bit then you, were able to generate enough money and you were able to go to, to Africa. You went, did you go back to Senegal? Yeah, we raised within the three cities, we raised for $40,000. So, wow. um, and we thought that was a lot of money. Uh, and it was, uh, definitely 
to get us going. Um, it lasted us for a year. Um, so we went back to Senegal and I worked in Dakar and then there's another town in the southern part of Senegal that um, we worked in as well. We did another project there. So we did two projects in Senegal and um, that's where uh, after that, after that, our next projects just, we've never had to search for projects. They all came to us because uh, people just kept they would find out about us and that they would know a friend that would uh, have a nonprofit. That's how we went to Uganda. It was one of our board members. Uh, her friend was a doctor that worked in Uganda. Uh, she was a professional kayaker. And so she would go to Uganda, but she had a health clinic there. And so she wanted to, for us to put a garden there. So it was always the domino of the right people coming in at the right time the universe just kind of putting the right people in front of you to help you go where you needed to go. Yeah. And uh, that's the beauty of it is when you start doing what you're supposed to do, it just kind of falls into place. That's a, I, I like that. Very law of attraction. Yeah. I well, I like what you just said there. And I think that maybe might be the money quote from this is when you start doing what you're supposed to do, things start to fall into place. It's, Oftentimes, individuals, they, they yearn for a certain type of success or a certain type of, well, maybe that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You know? yep. And they, they work and they spend all this time and effort. And they, why can't we be successful? Well, maybe you're not doing what you're supposed to do or maybe you're not doing it the way you're supposed to do. So yeah. I really like that. I, I appreciate you say that. I, I do think that lots of people get on the gerbil wheel. And there are different kinds of gerbil wheels, but I think lots of us get on these gerbil wheels and we don't pay attention to what it is we most want or why we're here. You know, a lot of us feel compelled to go to college maybe, and maybe we don't necessarily need to even go to college. We got wrapped up in the gay scene and that distracted us for several years. Um, you obviously were open to hearing what, you know, from the universe or whomever, why you were put on this earth. And then it came to you and everything just kind of opened up. I think it's very fascinating. And, and I'm just going to go back to that whole idea of the recognizing that there was a need. As soon as you start to fill that need, uh, individuals who also have that need are going to be attracted to that you know, or want to, or want to help in filling that need are going to be attracted to that. So you're, you start to grow that influence or, you know, if you go law of attraction, you grow that, that vector yeah. of, of, uh, of attraction to, uh, out towards other people and other things. Yeah. There's so many people that want to be involved in something. Um, that's what I've found is everybody would be like, oh, I can't do what you've done. But it's, or a lot of people don't have the capacity of just dropping something and going. And, but they have the, but they do want to do something good. And that's, where your donors come in or, or giving your time or uh, a place to stay or, uh, you know, renting or, you know, donating a place for the fundraiser. I mean, all these people, that's, it's the generosity of others that makes all this possible. Yeah. And that's, and that's not everybody can jump on a plane and go do it, but 
you can give in so many other ways. Mm-hmm. And that's, and giving the people the opportunity. And that's, I thought, I get tired of asking people for money. And it, it was hard to keep doing that year after year with the same story. And, but, and I would talk to friends about it and they would just, you know, you're giving up people an opportunity to give a gift as well. So don't feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they, if you're giving an opportunity for people to be, if they don't want to give, they're not going to give, but most people do want to be a part of something larger and you're giving that to them. Right. So speaking of being a part of some, something larger, how has this grown? What kind of impact is, is this, this idea grown to where, where is dig now? Oh, we're over 10 countries. It's 10. This is our 10 year anniversary. Um, and I mean, I'm so proud of what Sarah and Noah have done with it, you know, since I've stepped out and I mean, I'm, and just, I mean, even you guys getting involved. I mean, it's just, it has a life of its own. It's like, that's what's great about this is I couldn't stop it if I wanted to because it's, it's a living thing now and it just goes on its, it doesn't go on its own, but it's so many people, thousands of people are involved with the success and, and just, you know, continuing dig and it's affecting thousands of people and 10, we're over 10 countries. Um, and so it's just, it's a continual thing that keeps giving and, getting passed down from, you know, the grandmothers that learned it's both directions. I mean, we would teach grandmothers all these practices and they're passing it down to their children. But then you go into the schools and we're teaching these kids and it's the reverse effect. They're going home and they're showing their parents and their grandparents, these new techniques. And, and so it's this constant exchange of, of knowledge in both directions. And, and it's easy to see what's great about this is it's easy to see the, uh, your results. It's not like, um, like, you know, a lot of nonprofits doing HIV education. Well, you don't really know if people got it mm-hmm. or, but you know, if people got it when they're show you a tomato or, <laughs> you know, or Absolutely. They, they show you this basket of, of, of green beans that they're taking to the market, they're going to sell and they're going to make some money that you can see. And that's, what's great about this project. You can see all the results and the benefits that come from it. Well, and let's talk about that a little bit. So just so our audience understands what dig does is they, is you go into communities and you teach them how to do sustainable organic farming and then turn that into a business. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. And I, when I was watching, um, you know, doing some research, preparing for this, there was a video on the Digs on Digs website, um, and I'm going to probably botch his name up, but Isaiah Otiano Yango said in the video um, that what this what what Dig is doing is is teaching these, his community how to farm, whereas they didn't know how to do that before. And I'm curious how they got to that space where they 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 didn't know how to farm. Um, I guess it's. Um, they know how to farm and it's 
people do ask that question, why are you going over there? They all know how to grow food and farm, but they have been doing it the same way for so long. And they don't, it's farming dependent upon the seasons, the rainy season. And so everything is seasonal, but we are teaching them to, to small scale farming, uh, gardening, uh, with, uh, you know, rain harvesting techniques or how to, how do you preserve your water? How do you preserve your nutrients? All those types of things where they haven't really been taught that. Um, and how to garden year round instead of just waiting for these cycles of rain that like in Senegal, you know, there's a weather pattern that comes up through Africa, hits the Sahara desert, and then it comes back down. So there's like a three month period where there's rain and then it comes back down and it's done. It's, there's nothing, it's like turning the tap off on your water. It's finished. And so a lot of people don't stop growing stuff. But if you show them like growing in a tire or something, how to conserve your water, it's, it changes the whole thing. You can have a tomato and an eggplant in there and it's providing you with a lot of nutrition. So it's, yes, they do know how to farm, but they don't know how to do it all year round and they also don't know what nutrition is so much they eat to sustain themselves but they don't know what a tomato does or what a mango does or or carbohydrates uh stuff like that so we try and teach them how to do that gotcha. or how to under the meaning of of all that stuff of eating more vegetables because a lot of people they'll eat fillers rice and they'll grind up the uh, corn mm -hmm. and they'll uh, make this fluffy stuff. It looks like mashed potatoes and it's uh, it's just to fill their stomach. So they're not hungry, but there's not a lot of nutritional value in it. Mm -hmm. So teaching them to grow the vegetables and show them how important that is to sustain yourself instead of just uh, mashed potatoes or uh, rice as a base. So then you're teaching them how to scale this so that they can then take this food to the community and sell and make a profit so they can build, you know, farm some more and also spread the, the nutritious food into the community. How, um, so that must take some business education. Are you, are you, in addition to farming, are they going through some sort of business training? Yeah, we've, I mean, that's, I mean, dig has progressed so much in just how, um, you know, at first we thought it's just all about nutrition. You know, we were like, our goal was, yeah, we just provide this garden. They're going to eat the food and it's just about nutrition. But then after the first year, I realized it's nutrition's a side benefit of it. Um, it's, it's the community. All these people with HIV are, it's like being gay. They're in the closet. They, they, they don't, their family doesn't know about them. Um, there's so many women, grandmothers that I work with, mothers. They're, they are the only ones in their family that knows that they're HIV positive. Mm -hmm. So they keep that secret. And so them coming to this central garden was their home base to work with other people living with HIV, sharing their stories. It was they were in their community to where they could let their guard down. and. Um, like us be themselves mm -hmm. and so 
it was such a healing environment for them to, uh, they looked forward to that every day to get away from their families and to come be with people that they had a common thread with. Um, So that was a huge thing that we came to realize, but also, yeah, we were teaching them how to grow this food, but then they would go sell it um, because the money was more important to them at that moment than it was than the food until you get them to a point where, okay, they've got some money and now they can focus on keeping some of that food or growing extra food. Uh, so it was a challenge to try and get them past that point of, okay, it's not just all about money. Yeah. You keep some of this for yourself. And, um, so it sounds like then that they just they picked up on the the benefit of selling it on their own. Oh yeah, into a yeah. Business. Okay. Yeah, I mean they we didn't. That was something. Yeah, we weren't planning. I guess. Dig is just yeah, it kind of evolved on just watching how how they took things into their own hands, and then how can we help them maybe facilitate some of those things? Sure. <clears throat> well, and that's what. Why we resonated with it so much because this is the epitome of teaching a person how to fish and they can fish for a lifetime, right? Right. I mean, you, you've you've given these people not only nutrition but you've given them tools to be able to thrive financially and physically, um, and that can only that has to be producing all sorts of positive results both with regard to their health as well as to their local economy. Yeah, they. Um you know, it, some things happen by accident, and it's just uh, in that first year in Senegal, we had we plant these nurseries of all these plants and and for the garden. But then we planted way too much one time, and it's like, well, why don't you guys take these home? And that's the con. Then that was kind of like the step. Oh, well, maybe we should help help them replicate this at home too. And we call them home. Uh, we call them hug gardens, home urban gardens. <laughs> and um, so, and that really changed the dynamic of of their personal income and personal uh, food supply. Sure. And it's cheap. We would spend, you know, we found out that spending $100 on that, which that's a lot of money there, mm-hmm. uh, you'd get 300 They would save $300 a year. They either make 300 or save 300 in their expenses. Wow. So a hundred dollar investment changes everything. And that's just one year. So. Right. right. I think how many, you know, coming from that stock background, you know, how many times would you like to have placed that bet and had yeah. a 300% return? <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, they, some things, it's just seeing what, how, what, how they react to things and then, putting more effort into that side of it and it's it worked out great and that's that's probably our one of our biggest successes is those personal home gardens because they're they're invested in that themselves instead of going to this community garden where they don't really have complete full say in what they're doing or because they have to work with the other community members but uh but that home garden is theirs and they get very proud of that no doubt so that's got that's the, the juxtaposition of being somebody who has HIV AIDS in a society where that has to be kept a secret, where, where it's a stigma, and then all of a sudden becoming 
the leader in your community, not only are you providing food and feeding the community, but you're earning a decent wage doing so. You're and you're the breadwinner all of a sudden for the family. What yep. what what does that do to them? I mean, I mean that's got to be just a, a an amazing positive transformation in how they carry themselves. Yeah, it is, and it depends. Um... It depends on each country has you know different level of uh, percentage of people being positive. Senegal is very low percentage. Uganda is Senegal is maybe when I was there three percent. Uganda is, it was around sixteen percent, and some countries were up were up into thirty plus percent. Um, so the level of stigmatism kind of correlates to how if you get a lot of your population that's positive, there's less stigma to it, but there's still stigma to it. Um, the group we were working with in Uganda, they were definitely stigmatized. Even though there was a high percentage, there's definitely stigmatized. They've been kicked off. This group that we were working with had been kicked off land before. Uh, nobody would help them. And so we started helping them. And they were this just a rock star group and they just did amazing things. Uh, I've never had a group just take something and run with it. And they did, and they created other businesses out of the garden. And so they became examples in that community. They became the breadwinners, like you said, and the, the successful ones and they and that brought them out of that stigma. Uh, people looked at them differently. The president of Uganda, you know, gave them a cow. They asked, asked, he asked them to come work on his garden and to help him with stuff, just that type of recognition. Yeah. So going from being kicked off every, every, every piece of land that they tried to use to being courted by the president and, yeah. and, being respected in the community was was amazing. And the leader of that group, you know, again, one of those things uh, back to the farming in Africa was he, he's the, one of the best phrases that I've ever had in my life that, or with this dig experience, he said, Steve, I just didn't know we could do this. And they don't know, they didn't know that they had the capacity to do it. So just showing them <laughs> and walk, spending some time with them and going through that cycle and showing them it does work was yeah. uh, all they needed. Yeah. You don't know what you're capable capable of until you start doing it, you know, and then other people can like you said, take it and run with it. They can improve upon it. You know, they have the, you know, when you were talking about feeding them and, and putting their, you know, just putting stuff in their, in their, in their stomachs to fill themselves up. We know that that was probably having an impact on their capability to think as well, because we know nutrition affects your, your mental yeah. capabilities. You know, I was just thinking, you know, feed the stomach, your stomach feeds your mind, your mind feeds your soul. You know, so you've kind of completed this circle for these individuals that now they can 
turn around and help other individuals, whether it's financially or going out into the community and, and doing, you know, turning these projects into something bigger. Yeah. And that's, that's when it really feels good. Yeah. So, right. So, okay. Good. Yeah. I was going to say, when you have that moment, when you hear a quote like that, um, you didn't know that they didn't know that they were capable of doing that. Yeah. What What is the juxtaposition relative to what you dreamed of when this was just an idea? Yeah, so true. Um, I guess, can you word it different? What was the... So, Did you ever imagine that it could get to this point? Oh. Yeah. Um, I don't think I, I don't think I had a goal for Dig. Um, so, and that was our second year into it. So, um, when Patrick said that to me, so it was still, you know, figuring out what we're doing. Um, and, uh, but, and things were going by so at that time we were having so many people come to us with projects and I was working in Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania. And so at that time it was really a lot going on mm -hmm. and it was, yeah, I definitely felt good about, uh, what we were doing as far as making an impact and influencing all these people. Um, but also there was, and Sarah and Noah have really kind of fine tuned the program and, uh, made it into a better, uh, model as far as working with a community garden and then training, having those people become experts and then they pop out to the next village mm -hmm. and they're training that village. And so it's, it's pushing villages to train each other now instead of us always doing it. Right. That's awesome. So, uh, I guess the end result, I mean, the, the end goal is to where you don't have to, you work yourself out of a job. So <laughs> that's, that's, that was the, that's, I guess, with the first one of the kind of the frustrations when you look at Peace Corps, uh, when they're Peace Corps in Senegal for 40 years and they're still there, still working and on the same things. And so uh, you kind of get frustrated with why, why are we still there? Uh, so I guess the, deep down the goal for us was hopefully we won't have to be there. Sure. Okay. That makes complete sense. Do you uh, find that other nonprofits maybe don't focus as much um, either? They didn't, they didn't realize that they should focus on the education and, and teaching people to be able to do it on their own. Um, well, I think dig is unique in, we have something very tangible. I mean, this is definitely a teachable thing and yet results or it's very hands-on. Um, and I think why we were so successful is, uh, we're on the ground, uh, doing it. Um, and I'm myself and we had, 
the people that we would usually hire to come work with us uh, were peace, other Peace Corps volunteers that we had worked with in the past in Peace Corps or you had a Peace Corps mentality to where you could you could live in that environment comfortably um, without running water, without electricity, taking a bucket bath, you know, and and living in those hardcore situations and being embedded in the communities that you're working with. Mm-hmm. And a lot of nonprofits don't do that. Yeah. They live in the nice area of town. They or they'll live in the big city and then they'll fund a project and they'll come out and they'll drive out in their white truck <laughs> and um, go visit the project, get out of the truck, walk around and get back in the truck, drive back to capital city and mm-hmm. we weren't that way we were living in the communities um and with just the essentials and uh getting up every day going to work with them and uh and and being the only white person out there a lot of times so and that that makes such an impression on people with the people you're working with that they they know you're here to help them mm-hmm. and uh, you are committed to it, and you're one of them. You're you're treated completely different, and they take care of you. They listen to you more because you're there every day uh, with them, doing it, digging, planting. Um, it gains a huge respect from them, and uh, more than just not other nonprofits that just come out, check on a project and then go back. Sure. So, so it sounds like it's important to be in the community. Where you're, you're on, for some yes. of these nonprofits. You're being authentic and you are yep. being a part of the community rather yes. than being a server of the community. You're being a part of the community. Yeah. Yeah. You're, it means so much. I mean, all these, all these big NGOs, they all have these white trucks, <laughs> like land cruisers, um, you know, that are paid for by USAID or, you know, uh, other big, big agencies. And, uh, but we never had that stuff. And so we were looked upon much differently. And, and it's just, uh, you know, I, I think we did it right in that aspect. Well, we didn't have a choice, <laughs> but, um, it's a happy mistake or yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we just never had the money to do to buy vehicles or uh, do stuff like that. So it was, and it, yeah, you got to know the people so much better. Um, so, and especially when you're going to work with them in their homes and you get to know your their families, and uh, so, and if you're in the trouble, which happens, they're there to help you too. So. So let me pull it, bring us back around to you. So you established this successful nonprofit. It's doing more than you envisioned. Um, what makes you decide it's time for you to pass the buck off to Sarah and um, go on to some other endeavors? Well, after um, it was uh, how many years? I don't know. Um, it's 
So after six years of Africa, of so I would go, I would go do the projects in Africa, spend six to nine months there, come back to the states. We would do our fundraising circuit, which now included New York, Chicago, Birmingham, other. So we would, I'd come back, I'd hop on, go do all these fundraisers, and then spend a couple weeks with family, and then go back to Africa. So after doing that year after year after year, I just, and in Africa, I just don't have a life. I mean, I have a different life, uh, but it's not a gay life. It's not, uh, it's just full on work. Um, so it was just uh, enough. And I, I started becoming a magnet of negative things. I was not, I knew I personally wasn't happy because I felt lost in my uh I kind of wanted my old life back a little bit. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be with my, I want to be in the gay community again. And I wanted to be with my friends and, and uh, I didn't want, I would speed date my friends when I'd be back. And <laughs> I would just be asking them for money. So um, that's, I was just going from city to city. Okay, here comes Steve. He's just wants money for the nonprofit. So I, just got tired of that life mm-hmm. and Sarah Sarah definitely saw that and I was getting you know more unhappy as time went on and uh then you know as you I'm a firm believer and that's that comes in a mindset and then I start some negative things in Africa started happening bad things and like threatening things and it just became like the universe is like you said it's start um, presenting these little walls and barriers like okay maybe I should not maybe I shouldn't be doing this anymore so it got to that point where and people were asking me why are you going back I mean I had some really bad stuff happen um, and I'll talk about it later if you want but um, so so it got to the point of uh, okay it's time for uh, one of us to. It's basically time for me to step out. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, <laughs> and, sorry. and she was the best. And I and what's best for Dig? And I what the question came: What is best for Dig? And I was not best for Dig anymore. Gotcha. And but Sarah was, and fortunately, she was she took it on um, because I wasn't in the space to do it. And so, but she, um, I don't know if she really was either, but she was the best choice for Dig and she's flawless. And, and so uh, it was easy decision to uh, pass that on to her. Um, that's how it kind of came about. So. Yeah, it's just it's interesting. You not everything in our lives need to last forever. Sometimes good things last for a short period of time, and and we move on. Uh, And so I think that you carried or you you started the the seed. You know, you planted this original seed with your your idea, and you cultivated it to a point where it was growing 
you know, somewhat on its own. And then it was time for you to go and go find another seed to plant somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I, I knew it wasn't, even when I, we started it, it was, I knew it wasn't for my entire life. I knew this was a portion of my life. Right. And, and it was, and it, it was what needed to be done. And, and, uh, and I think Sarah, it was a positive much. I mean, it was the best decision for Sarah to take it over and run it because I would, she was the front person of dig and the main person here in the United States. I, I was the dirty person and, and going <laughs> and getting, you know, digging in the dirt and, and we complimented each other that way. She, Cause she's uh, very much uh you know, so good with the aspects of what has to be done on the state side, and I was good at what needed to be over there. And I, and as far as digging, building the gardens, and uh, and plopping down in a country and setting up, and so I love that part of um, that challenge of dropping in somewhere new and just creating something. Um, nice. That's that's a lot of satisfaction for me. Yeah. Good. So uh, just before closing, um, could you, how can people find out more about DIG? Do you have any of that information? How they might be able to uh, find out what DIG's working on and, or uh, maybe even donate or contribute? Yeah. The websites, I mean, search development in gardening.org or uh, reaplifedig.org is the website. Yeah, and you have a great website. I checked it out, and it's very easy to use. So <laughs> anybody who wants to donate is, um, can go find out how to do so there. Yeah, and you can you can see the, the true impact that's, that this is having. In the event that John and I attended, one of the things that was most memorable was hearing those stories, reading those stories of individuals that this has had an, a major impact on. And they owe much of that to you. <laughs> uh, thank you. And you, your community. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all of us. Um, and I would say if you go to that site, definitely watch. There's like a 10-minute video, I think, mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, when I see that video, and I had nothing to do with that video because um, it was done after I moved on, but I saw that, and it's just every time I see it, it just brings tears to my eyes because that's when I, wow, that's that's what we did. Yeah. Um, and it's so well done, uh, and that's the impact that can that's what I'll take with me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's the video they showed at the um, fundraiser that we were at. Um, yeah. It was very well done and very uh, heartfelt. So it was cool. Uh, and and one thing I'll just remind uh, our uh, audience that uh, if you are donating, one of the things you want to keep in mind is that if you work for a corporation that matches, you can oftentimes double or sometimes even triple your donation. And Read on the website how little money can go a long, long way in countries like this to help multiple families achieve uh, some of the things that we've talked about. Yeah, Yeah, and it's, uh, like I said, it's it's not, it's the little thing, little donation. I mean, one of the biggest lessons I learned with this, uh, I mean, we all know a lot of wealthy people. Um, and the thing is, I, and I expected 
I came in with false expectations of expecting more from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know they all have their different reasons for, and they got, they're being tapped in different ways and they're giving money in their own directions. But, uh, definitely it's, it's the little, it's your friends and the middle class people that sustain all this. Um, it's the little donations. Never, nothing is too small. Um, you don't have to give a thousand dollars or five thousand. It's ten bucks, twenty bucks. Uh, that that basically keeps the sustainability of the of the organization. So yeah, don't ever true. feel like you're just because you can't give big money, you shouldn't give it all. Right. Right. Yeah. Everybody can give in their own small way. Right. And that's one of the focuses that we have here on Clear Money is. Uh, helping people see how through their efforts they can do more and be more with being money conscious. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we want to thank Steve Bollinger for joining us. Um, To our audience, please uh, uh, like and subscribe and share this episode with your friends and family. Uh, We will have in the show notes how you can access um, Diggs information as well. And uh, don't forget to come back for another Queer Money next week. Thanks, guys. Yep, thank you. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of Queer Money, one that we were very happy, proud, and excited to bring to you because of the change that Steve Bollinger has made and is continuing to make with AIDS in Africa. It's amazing what this one trip did in changing his life, and now that life that has changed in the lives of so many people around the world. It's also one of the ways that, as you can see, just doing more and being more can have a huge impact on people. And a lot of that focus came from the fact that he was willing to make some financial changes in his life. So we want to encourage you to think about how you can do more and be more. And one of the ways that you can do that is by helping dig. So if you would like to, we encourage you to use the link at the bottom of the podcast page and donate to dig. And as Steve said, it's the small changes that add up to big change. So let's do more and be more. And thanks again for joining us for another episode of Queer Money. Okay, we just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. <laughs> <laughs> would help me if I had a personal chef made all my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> the other end, I like the butts, so... <laughs> yeah. uh, From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.